So on Monday, I stood up here and introduced Dr. Bud Benz. And Bud uh, took us through a marvelous monologue of Martin Luther looking back over his life as he recognized some of the events that the Reformation uh, brought into our world. On Wednesday, I thought we had a great chapel as Dr. Cruz and Father Kiefer had conversations about what it means to be a Catholic and what it means to be a Protestant and how we misunderstand each other and how we might understand each other better. And, um, and on Monday, I told you that today, Dr. Amanda Drury would be speaking on grace. And some of you are astute enough to go, wait, 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 wait. That's not Mandy. And I'm not. Some, it was about midnight uh, crossing over from Wednesday night to Thursday morning that Mandy emailed me and said, I've never done this before in my life, but I've got this virus that's hanging on and I can't shake. And I'm going to have to cancel speaking on chapel on Friday. And so we put her on the injured reserve list and signed me from the practice squad. And uh, I get to talk to you today about the, the general theme that Mandy was talking about, and that was grace. What is grace? You know, if you ask an American what grace is, the number one definition they give has to do with physical agility. It's a, it's a ballet dancer. It's a, it's a gymnast. It's graceful. And you don't want me demonstrating my lack of that because as you get, I've never been all that graceful. And as you get older, you get less graceful. And so we're not going to do this kind of stuff if you're okay with that. The number two answer that Americans give about grace is that it's the meal you pray before you eat. Grace is God is great and God is good. Now we thank him for our... Yeah, do you, get, do you think anything's odd about that? God is great and God is good. Now we thank him for our food. Don't you, they look the same. Don't you think it should be either good or in food or good and food? Something. I, I'm, I don't know whether the person who wrote that spoke English as a second language, or I don't know whether they used to say good differently than they do now. It just looks like it should rhyme, and it doesn't. But a lot of people, when they think of grace, think of that prayer. Musicians talk about grace notes. They're little extra notes in a score that aren't part of the melody, but they just add embellishment and, and richness to the texture of the song. Banks give grace periods, your mortgage is due, and if they give you a couple days after it's due before they charge you extra interest. We uh, name our children grace. Politicians fall from grace. We sing amazing grace. So when we say grace, what is it that we're actually talking about? Well, theologically, the definition of grace is the unmerited favor of God. The unmerited favor of God, the favor of God, his blessing in our life, his love poured out in our life. We don't deserve it. It is unmerited, but God pours it out on us anyway, and that's grace. You don't earn it. It's a gift. It's free. The scripture that probably best describes it is found in Ephesians chapter 2. It was one of Luther's favorite scriptures as he comes to the Reformation. It says this, God saved you by his grace when you believed. You can't take credit for it. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things you've done, so none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He's created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. You're saved 
by his grace. Lots of churches use this scripture as part of their core beliefs, and it's embedded right into what they say. We believe in grace. And yet I've noticed that churches do it so differently. Do you ever play this game? Let's see, I think we have a video of it. You notice he didn't seem to be having much fun? You know, so I'm not sure it was a game or not, but I mean, he was pretty committed to whacking those little mechanical moles. And I think some churches play that game with us. They sing Amazing Grace, but they keep whacking you over the head. You said the wrong word. Didn't have devotions enough. You don't pray right. You're a sinner. Whack, 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 whack. It's almost like they make you feel bad for being loved by God. Some churches take the opposite approach. I don't know if you picked it up, but Father Kiefer on Wednesday, Dr. Cruz asked him, what do Catholics think about Protestants? And he says, you know, we're suspicious that you pray this, you have people pray this little prayer to accept Jesus as your Savior, and then they can live any way they want to. And some churches take grace to that level where we're just amazed that he loves us so, but we don't change. We don't get this idea that we're his masterpiece created in Christ to do extraordinary things and to live extraordinarily obediently and joyfully. It's a prayer, what you, pray what you want and do what you want theology. Some of us, I think, have developed our own version of whack-a-mole. We're serious about God. And, and, and we're committed to doing things like Bible study and prayer and helping the poor and giving and things like that. But have you ever got to that place where you say, where you wonder if you're doing it enough, well enough? Am I reading the Bible enough? No. Am I praying enough? No. And we just keep whacking ourselves over the head because of our lack of performance. We often feel like we're not measuring up in grace in some of our lives turns into guilt. I think each of these ideas misses the point. So today as we talk about grace, I want to begin with Jesus. We're going to look in John chapter 1 where it says God became flesh or the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Jesus is the one they're talking about there. And it says, and he, he, he lived, we've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of what? Grace and truth. So he's full of grace and truth. Sometimes we make a mistake when we think about grace and truth. Sometimes we see truth as teaching, as facts, it's theology, it's hardcore, it's heavy. I hear some pastors say with some intensity, we just teach the truth. And usually it means they're mean. And sometimes we see grace is, grace is too mushy, it's too easy, it's too touchy-feely, it's all about love and joy, and we think there ought to be more to it than that. We see grace and truth as opposites from one another, contending with one another, and actually they're not. Jesus was full of grace and truth at one and exactly the same time. Truth is theology, it is instruction, and it misses the point if it's not. 
But Jesus, as he shared truth with us, was always winsome, was always gracious, was always kind, was always attracting in his nature. And grace and gentleness and wisdom is nice, but if it's not connected with truth at all, it misses the point of Jesus because he called us to full obedience and full surrender. And so grace and truth are inextricably connected to one another. Grace without truth is mushy. Truth without grace is harsh. I really believe that Jesus loves you. He's passionate about you. He offers you forgiveness. He offers you release from the penalty of sin. And all of that is a completely free gift from God. At the same time, I really believe that Jesus expects you to obey him. He said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. I don't want to participate in a -a whack-a-mole kind of theology. John Wesley You might recognize the name Wesley. We have a statue on the campus of John Wesley. This is Indiana Wesleyan University. John Wesley wrote a letter to one of his young pastors once who had asked him about teaching holiness. And Wesley says, teach it scarcely at all, but if you do, always wooing, never driving. Always inviting and enticing people towards it, never punishing them about it, never, never beating them over ahead with it. I think Wesley's advice and approach find their biblical foundations in the word of Jesus in Matthew chapter 11. Before we get that, we will look at it. I want to talk to you about the context in which Jesus spoke this. Jesus was a Jewish rabbi speaking in a Jewish setting to people well-versed and saturated in Jewish religious teaching. Their scriptures, what we know as the Old Testament, were filled with commands. And by the time of Christ, the rabbinical scholars had isolated 613 commands that people had to obey. It wasn't just 10, 613, 365 of them they were not supposed to do. One for about every day of the year. Don't do this and 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 don't do this. And then there were 248 that people had to do. Make sure you do this and make sure you do this. And, and, and there's this massive list of commands that they had to remember. And on top of that, there was something called the oral Torah. And because what, what the, the religious leaders understood is that you could have a misunderstanding about how to obey a specific command. I mean, everybody knew the command, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, and on it you shall do no work. And, this, and so the question then, well, what is work? And some people say, and so they had to d- define what work is. And so they had an interpretation, and another interpretation, and another interpretation, another interpretation. Everybody knew that the great command was to love your neighbor as yourself love God with all your heart soul and mind the question was what does it mean to love and so some rabbi would have an interpretation and another would have another interpretation it was called the oral Torah by the second century AD those interpretations were written down and collected in a book that was 6,200 pages long you think it's hard to remember 10 commands Think it's hard to remember 600 and some commands. You also got to remember 6,000 pages of other interpretations about the commands. Jesus talks to the Pharisees and he says, you've taken these burdens and tied them on people's backs and they're being crushed under it. And so he says to people, come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I'm humble and gentle at heart. You'll find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy to bear and the burden I give you is light. 
This was good news to people because some of them were exhausted from trying to carry the burden and some of them had given up knowing they just couldn't live it well enough. And Jesus says, are you tired of it? Are you tired of all the, the weight of it, the load of it, the rules of it, the never feeling like you're pleasing God? Come to me and find rest. He says there's something better than tugging the load. Something better than being constantly reminded of the, pot, of the massive list of rules you have to maintain. Being constantly reminded of your inadequacy. Jesus says, some of you are beaten up by life and some of you are beaten up by religion. Come to me. I'm gentle. I'm not harsh. And sinners flocked to this teacher who confronted them with truth. He said, love the Lord your God with everything you are, everything you are. He says, take up your cross and follow me. I mean, Jesus was not soft on truth, but they flocked to him because he was merciful and gracious and kind and loving and hope-filled. And there was something about him that connected to people. He continued to challenge people to live better, but he was gracious about it. Philip Yancey is one of my favorite authors. I know few authors like Yancey who are as honest as Yancey, who just admit their own struggles in their own places. In one of my favorite books ever, What's So Amazing About Grace, Yancey starts out with a story, and I just want to read it to you because I, it, it breaks my heart. He had a friend who worked with the street people down and out in Chicago. And uh, they were in a conversation one day, Yancey and his buddy. And the guy related this story to him. He said, a prostitute came to me in wretched straits, homeless, sick, unable to buy food for her two-year-old daughter. Through sobs and tears, she told me that she'd been renting out her daughter, two years old, to men interested in kinky sex. I can, I can hardly read that. She made more renting out her daughter for an hour than she could earn on her own in a night. She had to do it, she said, to support her own drug habit. I could hardly bear hearing her sordid story. For one thing, it made me legally, legally liable. I'm required to report cases of child abuse. But for another, I had no idea what to say to this woman. At last, I asked if she'd ever thought of going to a church for help. I'll never forget the look of pure, naive shock that crossed her face. Church, she cried. Why would I ever go there? I was already feeling terrible about myself. They just make me feel worse. Yancey writes, what struck me about my friend's story is that women much like this prostitute fled toward Jesus, not away from him. The worse a person felt about herself, the more likely she saw Jesus as a refuge. Then he asks, has the church lost that gift? Evidently, the down and out who flocked to Jesus when he lived on earth no longer feel welcome among his followers. What's happened? That's a question that haunts me. What's happened among us that those who are caught in sin don't feel welcome? I don't think we live in the church that Jesus envisioned. Everywhere he went, he found connections to people who were hurting, who were disconnected from the religion of the day. The priests judged these people as sinners and shut them out. Jesus knew they were sinners too, but he welcomed them in. He drew a bigger circle and included them. To a woman caught in the very act of adultery, he says, stop sinning. But he does more than that. 
People had brought her to Jesus to, to, to test him. The, the law said she should be stoned. Jesus, hearing that, bends down and starts writing in the dirt. Nobody knows what he wrote. And then he stands up and says, oh, I know the law says to stone her. But the one among you who is without sin, you cast the first stone because that's what the law says too. The accuser comes and in his purity casts the first stone. And then he kneels down again and starts writing. I'd love to know what he wrote. Did he write the great command, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself? Did he start writing the Ten Commandments? He, he's writing something, and I'm guessing they're reading what he's writing. And he just keeps writing, and he's standing there, he's kneeling there long enough. And one by one, from the oldest down to the youngest, the accusers begin to melt away. Until finally Jesus looks up, and it's the disciples are there, and this woman is there, and he's there. And he stands and said, where are those who accuse you? And they're gone. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. There's grace and truth. I'll forgive you, but live the life. This is a woman who was hopeless, and Jesus gave her hope. Is it any wonder that sinners flock to him? I want to be part of a movement like that. I want to be part of a Christianity that is not just full of rituals and just full of rules, not full of religious obligation. I want... I want to be part of a, a movement that's responsive in love to those who are sinning because that would include us. Jesus says, come to me. It's a call to intimacy. It's a call to relationship. That's why I like the word that Wesley used, that wooing word. It's an old-fashioned word, and often you think about it being used in, in uh, romantic literature. He wooed her with acts of kindness, you know, or he was a smooth operator, or whatever you want, might want to say. He wooed her. But I think it works, because our relationship with Jesus is supposed to be a love story. That's what he wants. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. 1 John tells us that we are, God lavished his love on us so that we could be called children of God. A lavishment of love. You don't force somebody to love you. You don't beat them over the head to get them to love you. You don't guilt them into loving you. Force and beatings and guilt can produce external compliance, but they don't produce love. And he's after our hearts. He wants to meet us where we are. I think some of us struggle with that, quite honestly. I think some of us get up in the morning and we put this mask on because we think we're at this university where, where lots of people are followers of Christ. And we, we look at our history and we think, if people knew my history as a sophomore or junior or senior in high school and some of the things I did, I wouldn't be accepted here. And some of them think, if people knew that the the thoughts that I struggle with every day, I wouldn't be welcome here. And if people knew what you watched on the internet last night, you think I wouldn't be welcome here. And you just have this whole list of things that you look at the internal part of your life and you say, that's not what it should be and it's not what it should be. And so you get up in the morning and you put your mask on and you say, everything's good. And yet when you wear masks, you never really feel loved. The best anybody does is love the fake you not the real you. Now I want you to know Jesus loves the real you, the way you are. Now, he doesn't want to leave you in your sin, but he meets you there. He says, follow me, come to me, 
and I'll give you grace. And then he says, take my yoke and let me teach you. Let me teach you. And he says, you need to live it. It was 45 years ago last June 10th that Patty and I stood at an altar right here in Marion at Lakeview Church and we got married. We said our vows of love to one another. I said that I would love and cherish her and keep myself only under her so long as we both shall live. That's what I said. And on that day, even though it had been informal up till then, I mean, she'd been my fiance for a while now and I hadn't been dating around other women during that period but on that day it became official that I was a one woman guy for the rest of our lives together but let, let me tell you it hasn't been hard you know I haven't been walking through my life going oh wow oh no oh she's cute oh one woman guy She's attractive. She seems to like, oh, can't do that either. I'm a one-woman guy. It hasn't been difficult at all to be a one-woman guy because love can do that. It can cement our relationship together. And it's been a privilege for me to spend my life being a one-woman guy in relationship to one woman who's fantastic. And it's blessed me and it's fulfilled me and it's brought me joy and it's brought me peace and it's just been a gift to my life. Jesus calls us into that kind of relationship where he's, we're one Lord people, where he's the one we follow and he's the one we commit ourselves to and we, we love him with everything we are. Except sometimes we don't. Francis Chan writes this in his book, Forgotten God. Nowhere in scripture do I see a balanced life with a little bit of God added in. And yet when I look at our churches, this is exactly what I see. A lot of people who have added Jesus to their lives. People who have, in a sense, asked him to join them on their life journey, to follow them wherever they feel they should go, rather than following him as we're commanded. Jesus did not die in order to follow us. He died and rose again so that we could forget everything else and follow him to the cross. And there it is. Taking his yoke upon ourselves. Taking his teaching to ourselves. It's there we find rest and peace and reality. It's bringing our lives to him and letting him shape us as he wishes. It's inviting him to lead us it's casting aside our guilt, our penchant for control, and simply following him into an amazing relationship of grace and love. Taking his yoke is stepping into intimate relationship with Jesus. He's there to teach us. He's there to help us. He's there to make life better. He's there to keep our feet from the paths of sin, and he's there to lead us in obedience and into abundant life. See, I think sometimes we think of his commands as limits. And what they really are is an invitation to grace. He says, live within the circle of this guidance for you and you'll be blessed. I mean, I've discovered that in my married life. We'll discover that in our faith life as well. Come to me, all you who are weary, carrying a heavy burden, and I will give you rest. Learn from me. Follow me. I'm full of grace, thankfully, 
and truth, thankfully. And I want relationship with you. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Lord, all across this room, there are people with different places of their faith journey. Some are passionately in love with you. Some love you but struggle because they don't love themselves very well. They're failing to love the person you love. And some, for whatever reason, are not walking with you. And if you were here right now, you'd express your love and grace to them in a way that would make them want to lean in. I would just pray for each and every person here that we today would be overwhelmed with amazement at your grace and love that would cause us to lean towards you and say, God, help me to get it and help me to live it so I can live in your freedom and joy. In Jesus' name, amen. You're sent out.